You're listening to audio from Mercy's Door Community Church in Mascouda, Illinois. If you'd like to get more information about Mercy's Door, we'd love for you to connect with us on Facebook or check us out at mercysdoor.org. So again, guys, welcome. Uh, I don't know every face in here this morning, and I just want to say again, my name is Adam, one of the pastors here at Mercy's Door. I'd love to know you. If I don't, please come say hello to me today after service. I would love to be on a first-name basis with you. Uh, You know, we just wrapped up last week a sermon series that we entitled Words of Life, and by it, we went week by week in kind of a survey over a theology of words. And what we asked the Lord to do, what your pastors were before the Lord and asking Him to do in that sermon series, is to refine for us the speech of a redeemed people. That week by week, we would, with narrowing focus, come to understand what the Lord means when He says that He has made us new creations, and understanding that new creations also have a new tongue, a heavenly tongue, speech that reflects the voice of their saving father. And so in week one, we talked about the voice of God that broke into time and space and through speech, he procreated and created all things that the voice of God builds up. And then in week two, we looked at the voice of our enemy, Satan, and that his voice destroys and tears down. And then we talked about prayer and we talked about evangelism and we talked about what it means to be an ambassador. We talked about what it looks like to preach the gospel to yourself. We talked about what it looks like to return speech to your enemy. And week by week, with narrowing view, we ask the Lord, refine our speech. Give us tongues that we can offer back to you in worship. Show us what it looks like to follow you with our mouths. And now we're starting a sermon series through a selection of the Psalms called Doctrine and Emotions, how the Psalms give voice to our experiences. And I'm praying that, and and I think it would be helpful for all of us to treat this sermon series in some ways as really a continuation of the last right, that as we've asked the Lord to help to refine our speech, I think that if you're like me, it's not hard to walk away from the last sermon series thinking a whole bunch of oughts, right, and we have prayed as your pastors that that wouldn't be the case, but it's hard for us sometimes to not be like, all right, well, what I take away from this, I should pray more, I ought to evangelize more, I ought to act more like an ambassador. I ought to preach the gospel to myself more. I ought to, I ought to, I ought to. And what we often find is we're living in community with each other is that there's this pesky thing that gets in the way called emotions, right? Like somehow I can ascend academically to agreeing with these things, but once my emotions come into play, really all bets are off. Who knows how I'm going to behave now? Who knows how I'm going to speak now? And so we're turning to the Psalms here. And when we turn to the Psalms, I want to say to you that surveys say that the Psalms are the most popular book of the Bible, the most popular passages of the Bible, the most popular chapters of the Bible come from the Psalms. It's the most read book of the Bible across the nations. Jesus himself quoted the Psalms more often than any other book of the Bible in his earthly life. The Psalms are awesome. And what we're asking the Lord to do through this selection of psalms, and this morning we're going to be in Psalm 16, if you want to find your way there, is we're asking him to give voice to our experiences, to, 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 for us to look at the people of God from generations past and how they navigated very emotions and circumstances and experiences in their life and what they had to say in order that we might draw from them and apply all of these different, this theology of words that we've just walked out to, to what happens when stuff hits the fan, right? So this morning we're going to be talking about the emotion or the experience of joy. 
joy, okay? And this is hard for me this morning, and I want to tell you why. Today's Father's Day, and happy Father's Day to your fathers out there. My dad died in 2017 rapidly from pancreatic cancer, and with his death also came the death of my desire from childhood to have a restored and reconciled relationship with him. We were mostly estranged. He was a mostly absent father, and I had always desired that the Lord would redeem that, and with his rapid death to cancer, I, I wasn't able to have that, not in the lasting way. And so uh, every Father's Day since 2017, this sobering reality comes back over me, and I'm brought into a place of lament. And we're going to talk about lament and other emotions in the course of this sermon series. And so as my sermon was meant to be on joy, I found myself in this place thinking, you know what, maybe I need to call up the other pastors and shuffle things around a little bit. Maybe I'm not the guy to be preaching on joy this morning and calling out to the Lord this weekend, honestly saying to him, you know, God, I don't know that I can preach joy this Sunday. I don't know that I can do that. Maybe we can call an audible here. And I'm sure that if I would have reached out to the other pastor, somebody would have agreed. But the Lord just counseled me and said, that's precisely why I want you preaching on joy this morning. And so I'm going to do my best here to give that away to you guys, what he is saying to me through this Psalm of David. I'm going to read the whole thing for you guys. Would you stand with me while I do it? Just in honor and reverence to the word of God. Psalm 16, David writes, Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also, my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. This is the word of the Lord for us this morning. You can be seated. So I am a father of three boys. They've all got birthdays coming up in the next month or two. And so they'll be 15, 9, and 6. Okay? And their experiences range like you would expect in the age gap like that. And my oldest, uh, Jack, he, he, when he was six years old, started showing some peculiar behaviors, washing his hands to the point that they were raw, checking the locks a thousand times. And we discovered that Jack had an acute onset of what's called child obsessive compulsive disorder. And over the last 10 years, the Lord's given him tremendous victory in that. But what we saw happening in my Jack back then was that there was a presence of emotions, of feelings and thoughts, of insecurity and doubt and fear and anxiety and stress and things like this, right? A, 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 a looking at my life and feeling like I don't have control. And then there was an outward expression in response to these feelings, right? Because ultimately, we have been created in the image of God and the great 
greatest image of God is the one Jesus Christ who in his life wept and laughed and flipped tables over in righteous anger, right? Like we have a Jesus who perfectly modeled emotions for us, and so they're meant to find their way to the surface. Emotions, just say at the beginning, are not meant to be suppressed in this Christian life, and they will find their way out because you've been made in the image of God. And yet, the answer for Jack as the years have gone on over the 10 years has not been to make it such that Jack never felt stress, that Jack never felt anxiety or a lack of control. The solution to the stress response was not to eliminate the stress. It was to introduce him over time again and again to his Lord, who gives voice to those emotions and gives himself as the answer to those emotions. And so Jack has had victory over these harmful rep uh, representations of his emotions as he has turned to the Lord and returned worship and questions to him. And I'm hoping that we're going to find that in David here. Now Jack's my oldest. That's the easiest example. I want to give you another. My youngest, Gus, he's five. This is maybe a month ago now. He calls to me from the other room, okay? And Gus is, he loves the Lord. And I would say that he credits all joyful things to the Lord more than anybody that I've ever met in the most wonderful way. So he calls to me from the other room, Dad, Dad, you need to come see this. Jesus has given me a new ability. Jesus has given me, an, and, I, and I come around the, the corner and I see what, what Gus is up to, and he proceeds to do a somersault off the couch and land on his head. Stands up, two hands up. <laughs> Did you see that? Gus, when he runs around the front yard, says, I think Jesus has increased my speed. This is Gus crediting every good thing to Jesus when he gets an owie, a bruise, or a cut and wakes up in the morning and it's healed over. Jesus has healed me. Very quickly attributing every good thing to him. My middle child is the quintessential middle child. He's eight, he'll be nine. And he's got this older brother who's got more liberty than he does naturally. And he's got this younger brother who seems to get away with more than he does naturally. And so he's got a chip on his shoulder as the middle child. And so Boaz, my eight-year-old, has his friends coming over and he wants to pull out this card game that he's in love with right now called Machi Koro. And he says, he, he had the last couple of times, he's won a couple of hands in a row because he's found the perfect strategy, the unbeatable strategy. And, but he doesn't know nuance yet because he's little and dumb. And so he, says, <laughs> so he says, can we play Machi Koro? I want my friends to see how impressive I am. Okay. <laughs> and so here you've got Gus, five, saying, come look at this new ability that Jesus has given me. And you've got Boaz, nine, saying, can we all gather around so I can show off how impressive I am? And these are two very different approaches to the same thing, that good things have taken place, but I don't necessarily have a, a mechanic or a mechanism for how to express this or where to credit it. And so you can imagine Bo's devastation when he lost, right? Let's look at how David processes this. So this is, I, I share these things with you to say to you that when I said to the Lord, how can I preach joy this morning when I myself am so low? He said to me a number of things, and we're going to get there, but the first thing he said to me is, look to your children. Your children don't wait until their circumstances have changed to get their eyes on the Lord, and when they do, that's when you see despair, like with your eight-year-old, and yet when Gus falls and he takes a beating on his knees or whatever, 
he's the first one to say to me, can we pray to the Lord because I've seen Jesus heal this before. So this morning, I'm going to ask you guys to walk that out with me and ask the Lord to seal joy over me as I struggle. So this is what it looks like. David opens up and says, Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. That's verse 1. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. And I have never prayed, preserve me, from a mountaintop. I have never called out to the Lord, preserve me, when things are going really well. So we know right off the bat, we don't know exactly what it is, that this prayer, this poem, this song that David is writing is coming from a place of desperation. Anytime that you've ever called on the Lord, preserve me, you're nervous that the opposite may happen or that preservation may not happen because you're calling on the Lord to preserve you. And this was encouraging to me and it's encouraging to you. And before I get too deep into the psalm, I want you to write it down that this is point number one, that joy is not only available to you once your circumstances have improved, once your circumstances have changed. That joy is not hinging on your understanding of your lateral circumstances. I'm going to read you a psalm that we are calling the perfect psalm to understand joy. And it's coming from a guy who's writing it from the, where his first words are, preserve me. If you are in a place in your life right now like I am where the cry of your heart is preserve me, O Lord, joy is available to you right now today. Okay, let's see where he finds it. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. Let's replace the word for with because. Preserve me, O God, because in you I take refuge. For in you I take refuge. When he first calls on the Lord here for preservation, he's, he's logicking, he's, he's giving logic to the Lord. He's saying, preserve me because it's in you that I'm taking refuge. You can imagine a tornado ripping through a valley and you see a sturdy brick building and you head inside and you take hold with two arms to a steel beam and you say to the beam, preserve me, O steel beam, for it's in you that I take refuge. And the steel beam was either going to do it or he's not, but he's not going to do it because you ask because it's just a steel beam. This God is a living God and in him you've taken refuge and looked around you. David has looked around him at the refuge that he's taken his rescue in and looked around and said, this is just sturdy walls. These are sturdy walls. This is, this is good refuge. Lord, I have brought myself under your shelter. I have brought myself under your care. I have brought myself under your protection. And therefore, as one under your wings, do what you do and preserve me. He's not hoping for preservation here. Very quickly, he says, preserve me, O God, because in you I take my refuge. I am looking to you for my escape. I am under your care and provision, so do what, God, I am trusting in you to do. Preserve me from what we don't know yet, but we will. Continuing on, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. If you're reading the ESV like I am, you'll see that the first Lord is all capitalized. And when we see this, this is the translators indicating to us that this is the proper name of God, Yahweh. And so what David is saying is, I say to the Lord, Yahweh, the great I am, the Lord who introduced himself to Moses at the burning bush, the Lord of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the great God of Israel, I say to you, God, to you, Yahweh, you are my Lord, lowercase. 
Adonai. Adonai is king, sovereign, my sovereign. I say to Yahweh, the great I am, I say to the Lord of Israel, to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, you are my king, my sovereign, Adonai, and I have no good apart from you. There's a specificity that comes from David's lips here that I think is important if we're going to find our way to joy when we started from preserve me, O God. Okay, from a desperate cry of preserve me, if we're going to get to joy, David moves quickly from his petition to exalting the character in the name of God. I say to Yahweh, I'm talking to you, God. No other gods, but to you, the great I am, you are my king, and I have no good apart from you. And when we get to no good apart from you, I want to do this together, okay? You're going to interpret this one of two ways, and both ways are perfect. So I just want you to hear them both, okay? To say, I have no good apart from you. If you're hearing that as there is no good at all in your life apart from the Lord, and some of you are truly experiencing it right now, and you're looking up and you can't find anything to call good except for God in your life, and that's how you're hearing that, great, If there is nothing good in your life, by your estimation, except for God, good. I have no good apart from you, he says. But the goodness of God is so great that no other good is necessary. But for others of you, you're hearing that all good that is in your life is flowing from God, that you wouldn't have anything good if it didn't come from God. Also true, also good. You're like Gussie, who every good thing that happens to him is saying, thank you, God. Thank you, Jesus. That was you. That was you. Seeing him in every good thing, wonderful. That's also true. So whether you're looking around your life and spotting good everywhere or spotting good only in the face of the Lord, I'm telling you, you're getting it right, and joy is accessible to you. Okay? As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. And this is the main verse that got me into the pulpit this morning without changing my passage. Okay? I'll tell you a story. I have a dear friend. She used to go to this church. A lot of you guys are new since she's left. Her name is Pam. She has many, many maladies that render her disabled. And that disability has only increased over time. And she's under the daily care of her sister. She can't be without her. And so when her sister needed to move to Harker Heights, Texas, she needed to bring her sister Pam with her in order to keep her under her care. That's why she's not here anymore. When she was with Mercy's Door, she was mostly wheelchair-bound, but she was uh, still able to get out and get around and make friends and all that and come under the care of the church, and that's wonderful. But as her conditions have progressed, she's dealing with a broken hip. The surgery failed. They can't repair it again. I mean, I can't overtell her story. It's hard. And she's been bed-bound now for months. In Harker Heights, Texas, she moved there and hasn't been able to leave the house since she arrived, unable to make a new friend that she might bring care into her life, friendship, laughter, and joy. And so my wife talks to her a few days a week. We try to minister to her from afar, and we're loved by her from afar. But just imagine, bedbound, disabled, in a foreign place, knowing nobody, how desperate and destitute that can feel. And so I've got this friend, a pastor from the church that 
sent Michael and I out to plant this church up in the Chicagoland area, and he recently moved down to Georgetown, Texas to plant a church there just a month or two ago. It's about 45 minutes from Harker Heights, and so I reach out to him, and I say, listen, my dear sister in the faith, your dear sister in the faith needs the church, and she is unable to come to the church, and so I need the church to come to her. And the next day, people who had never met or heard of Pam were contacting her and starting to foster and nurture friendship. And this bold and in bold and prayer with Sarah and I, to the point that we say, okay, th God, thank you. Thank you. But there's surely thousands of Christians right in Harker Heights. I'd never heard of the place at the time. Can you send her neighbors? And so we're praying for this at Gospel Community, and a newer member to our Gospel Community says, my sister used to live in Harker Heights. She just moved, and I'll see if she knows anybody. So now this person who I've never met, who Pam's never met, who's never heard of Mercy's Door, is the very next day sending a text, Hi, my name is Jean. I live in Harker Heights, and I'd like to meet your friend. And this deep celebration from our dear sister in the Lord who is bedridden in Harker Heights that the Lord has sent his people to her to minister to her in her time of need. This is what David is seeing when he says, as for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. He's not saying all my delight is in them and not God and them be instead of God or I love the people of God more than God. He's saying all my delight, for, look at all the people of the world, all the people of the land, all of my delight is bound up in those who have seen the face of my father. All my delight is bound up in the people of God who are indwelled by His Spirit, who are under His good commands. And what put me in this pulpit this morning is I said, Lord, how am I supposed to go up and preach joy from this lowly place to the church? He said, go, put yourself among the excellent ones in whom is your delight. Go stand before the excellent ones. You think they need you, you need them. And so I'm here this morning proclaiming to you things that you need to hear, but knowing that what I need most is you today. That the Lord will minister to my soul in, in, as deeply as I step into community with his people. And I expect that from this place when we get to GC on Friday, you guys are going to minister to me even more. Because the Lord's people, the saints, are the excellent ones in whom is my delight. And I say to you, if you're struggling to enter into joy from a place of despair, if you're struggling to know joy when your circumstances are tight, my first question is going to be, are you dwelling among the excellent ones? Are you dwelling among the saints, the people who know the Lord? These are the primary vessels of ministry that the Lord has placed in your life. And they're wonderful. And if your answer to that don't hear this wrong, but if your answer to that is, I don't like Christians very much. I would say a couple things to you. The first would be, are you spending time with Christians? And I don't mean churchgoers, I mean Christians. Are you spending time with people who have been captivated by the Lord Jesus Christ, who have surrendered their lives and died the death of their flesh to be risen again as a new creation, to pour themselves out in service to their king, and where they're living a radical life that makes no sense to the world because they have, they've been ransomed by a good and perfect God? Because there's no way that you're spending time with those people and then walk away and be like, eh, 
right? The church of God is marching forward and changing the world. Second thing is that it should, it should say something to you. If you would say to me, you know, I, don't, I really don't prefer my Christian friends. I really have a much better time with my non-believing friends. I would say to you, the Lord supposedly is your greatest source of pleasure and joy. How can it be that you find more satisfaction among people who are taking no joy from your greatest sense of joy? How can it be? That's a clash that we should reconcile. How can it be that you can spend time with people who do not know your God and get something more from that interaction than from those who have spent time in the presence of your God? There's a, it's a good indication that you are not receiving a true view of the Lord right now, and so I would want to walk with you through that. I would want to walk with you through that. See, David says, of all the people in the land, the saints are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. And I know you guys, I've been walking with you guys for a lot, like we are some jacked up people. We are broken like the rest of the world. We got a whole bunch going on. We have wounded each other repeatedly and reconciled just to wound again and reconcile. I'm not saying that, that the saints are better than anybody else. What I'm saying is the saints know the one who is better. And that's where we encounter him. When I asked the Lord, who are you having me preach to this morning? I asked him, who am I preaching to this morning? I pray that all of you receive something from this psalm this morning. What he said to me is, this sermon is for the broken. This sermon is for the one who desires joy, who, who is finding joy hard to come by for the downcast and the downtrodden, for the bitter, for the angry, for the sad, for the one who wants joy and who's looking for it in every place and is struggling to find it. That's who this sermon is for. And that's why I'm hanging out on this point longer than maybe I intended when I, when I looked at this passage originally. Is if you're looking for it, you've got to start among the people of God. Because they know the answer. And I know the answer, but I'm only going to give it to you for another half hour. But they're going to live it with you. Time and again, come to my GC. Verse 4. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. So he's saying the inverse of verse 3 where he says, of, as for the saints in the land, they're the excellent ones in whom is my delight. And then he says, but for those who run after other gods, their sorrows only multiply. My joy is found among these and the multiplication of my sorrows is, a, is found among these. To turn to any other god, and you don't have to name it, he doesn't need a name like in ancient times of telling you when we hoist things up to be our God, status and money and sex and lust and, 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 and esteem and reputation or whatever approval, affirmation, whatever we make our God and we say, if I have this thing, I will have joy, I will have pleasure forevermore. If I have this thing, I will be okay. We find that our sorrows are only multiplied as we find time and time again that they do not satisfy like the fountain of living water. David says, I have taken my refuge in the Lord. You are my king. I have no good apart from you. And in, among your people is all of my delight. And I know that to look anywhere else is to merely multiply my sorrows. So I will not participate in their worship. Verse 5, the Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. 
so you can picture chosen portion and cup. I put a banquet table in front of you, and it is filled with every imaginable pleasure that the, Lord, that the world has to offer. Everything that promises you joy and satisfaction and pleasure is laid out on this table looking beautiful as can be. And David looks it over and says, The Lord, God of Israel, the great I am, is my portion and my cup. My fine wine, my choice cut, is the Lord my God among every offering of the Lord or of the world. For you hold my lot. I want you to remember that this song started, this poem started with a petition of preserve me, O Lord. A desperate cry. A lowly, desperate cry. And immediately starts to build a pattern where he starts to exalt the characteristics of God. He starts to exalt the people of God. He starts to exalt the goodness of God. He starts to reject the sorrows of lesser gods, of false gods. And then he gets here in verse 5, he says, the Lord is my chosen portion. At this point, he's deeply steeped in joy. Not a future joy, not a, a hopeful joy. Right now, actively joyful, worshiping the Lord. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. I want you to imagine a smile on his face as he says it. And then he declares this truth, you hold my lot. You hold my lot. Guys, for those of you who are looking at your outward circumstances, your situations in life, your difficulties, and believing that something's got to change if you are to know joy, this verse is for you. This God who David is exalting, this God from whom all good flows, this God in whom you take refuge, this God in whom you delight, holds your lot. He holds your lot. And you, you can say to me, Pastor Adam, I don't like my lot. Yeah. Let's read the next verse. I think it's important. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Okay, what lines? Boundary lines. Okay, we're talking about boundary lines. David's saying, the boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places as he declares that the Lord holds his lot. Okay, your lot in life, the boundaries that you find around your life that hem you in, that box you in, that hold you in, are directly from the hand of the Lord. That means that, e and I'm talking even about the ones that you would say, these surely cannot be good boundaries. These surely cannot be a good lot. Come from the hand of the God who only does good. And David says that they have fallen in pleasant places. How could it be that as he cries out to be preserved, that he would claim that his, his lines have fallen in pleasant places? I'll tell you how. Because wherever the boundary lines that the Lord has placed in your life have fallen, he has drawn them around himself. I want to say it again. Wherever the boundary lines in your life has fallen, he has drawn them around himself. He has said, within these boundaries is where you find me. And for each of us, those boundary lines may look a little bit different, but that's because the Lord has nuance in looking in, at you and knowing you. And in knowing you has chosen very specific boundary lines that will 
hem you in close to him. So no matter where the boundary lines have fallen, you can say, the Lord who only knows, who only ever does good, holds my lot. And if that's true, then the boundaries have all fallen in pleasant places because the Lord would never draw boundaries around a place where he is not. So he's in here with me, in here with me. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. So sticking with the imagery of land and property lines and all of that, we're not talking about an inheritance of land primarily, although there's a piece to it. As David concludes that the boundary lines fall where the Lord is, what he's declaring is that my inheritance, my beautiful inheritance, is in fact the Lord. My inheritance is the Lord, not the land, not the circumstances. It's not only the people who have it going really well right now that can say, what a beautiful inheritance when they look out at their boundary lines. It's the people who are looking out at rocky soil and difficult times and harsh storms and barrenness and all of it and say, the Lord holds my lot. He's made the boundary lines fall in pleasant places and I have a beautiful inheritance. Somehow, we both declare the same at the same time when we look at our boundary lines because our God is one and the same and he has drawn himself into those lines. He is our beautiful inheritance. And David, from this place of calling on the Lord, petitioning the Lord to preserve him, looks out and says, you are so good. From that place, And that's where I've asked the Lord to bring me this morning. Let it be that I can look at my lateral circumstances where I question that it could really be good and trust that those boundary lines have fallen by the very hand of the Lord who controls my lot and therefore I have a beautiful inheritance. Remind me of it on Friday. Verse 7. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel in the night also. My heart instructs me. This was me last night. Just the Lord ministering to me, giving me counsel that this is the text he chose for me. The same for you. You can bless the Lord who is giving you counsel, who in the night is instructing your heart. Like he's not leaving you alone to sort through your quest for joy. Right? He's not leaving you alone for you to try out all of these different things that you think might give you joy and to find again and again that your sorrows only multiply. The Lord is your counselor who draws near to your heart even in the night to fill you with his wisdom and his good counsel. And for those who find it, they find that they have a beautiful inheritance. Verse 8, I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand I shall not be shaken. This, I shall not be shaken, should, we should tie it directly back to verse 1, preserve me, O God. We have moved in eight short verses from preserve me, God, to I shall not be shaken. And all that has happened in this short span of time is that David has systematically set his eyes upon his Lord and exalted his goodness and majesty and wonder and kindness 
all that has had, nothing has changed about his circumstances in eight verses as he's sitting down writing this poem. Right, like I'm not going to go home and write a poem tonight and on verse one be in one situation and by verse eight everything's changed. What happened for David is in eight verses his eyes got fixed on his greater reality. And this is what the church gets wrong. And I, not, not all churches, but generally speaking, in my time among the church, we get this wrong. Where we treat emotionalism like sin and like stoicism or academia like, like piety. Where we are trying to suppress emotion and trying to really fix our eyes on reality. And, and it's, it's weird. Like, David never felt the need to do that. He was able to simultaneously feel deeply his current strife, feel deeply his current emotion, hold it out to the Lord, exalt true things, and allow them to minister to him in, an emo- in his emotions in order that it might be turned for worship. And that's, that's, the, that's the mechanic that we're invited into. I, there are too many Stoics in the church, too many bored people in the church. Too many people who want to suppress their emotions and just say true things that they're not really actively believing. Who want to hide when their knees shake. The Lord gets great glory and majesty and worship when we bring our shaking knees to Him and allow Him to minister to us in that place. Either you're going to seek the glory by showing everybody how great you are at talking yourself into stabling your knees, or you're going to bring those shaking knees on display and call out to the Lord and let Him get the glory for ministering to you in that place. One will result in real joy, where like Gus, we credit Jesus for showing up for us in that time. And in the other one, you don't get real joy. You just get to show everybody how tough you are. And nobody needs that. Nobody needs that. I shall not be shaken because he is at my right hand. You know, we act like there are two realities, right? That there's like the lateral reality, this earthly reality, then there's spiritual reality, there's the heavenly reality, and we act like this is the real one, and so a lot of times you'll hear me preach in various sermons, I'll say things like, your joy, like this morning, your joy is not dependent on your circumstances, your joy is not dependent on your circumstances, your joy is not dependent on your circumstances, in a sense I mean that, in a sense I mean that, but I also need you to hear me to say, not tongue-in-cheek, your joy is totally dependent on your circumstances, in your circumstances, if you are redeemed in Christ, that you stand eternally forgiven before the Father with a great inheritance waiting for you and the Holy Spirit indwelling you to minister to you every day of your life, those are your circumstances. That is your actual reality. That's not just something that we're saying. That you're, we're inviting you into actually existing in that space. And so on the one hand, yes, your joy is not dependent on your understanding of your lot, but your joy is absolutely hinging on your view of your truer reality, your spiritual reality, your standing before this good and perfect God. He is your ultimate joy he, because he is your ultimate reality. And therefore, he says, verse 9, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. 
My flesh also dwells secure, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. We have just gone from crying out to, therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My whole being rejoices? Guys, I want to see that. I want to hear it like we heard it in the first song this morning. I want to hear joy in the house of the Lord. I want to see the people of God with their whole being rejoicing because their eyes are fixed on their true highest pleasure and they are finding him to not just be sufficient but to be more than enough for all of their days. This is what the church has been enabled into. True, deep satisfaction in the Lord. True, deep, whole being rejoicing. Have you ever heard a Christian who says, like, joy and happiness are two different things? We don't mean happiness, we mean joy, and we kind of make, like, joy a really holy word, and happiness, like, a really secular word. Happiness is fleeting, but joy is, like, there even when you're miserable, kind of thing. Like, no. Joy is not there when you're miserable. Misery is there when you're miserable. Joy is there when you're joyful, (laughs) right? Like, but we want to make joy this pious, kind of unattainable thing because we're not actually believing we can have it. That's why we do it. It's okay that I'm not happy because at least I have joy. Well, where's your joy? Well, I can describe God. Yeah, but you can experience him too. And in him are treasures forevermore, pleasures forevermore. Your whole being can rejoice even when you're downcast and downtrodden. This isn't fake. Like David's not pretending. He's literally just moved to rejoicing, getting his eyes fixed on his God. My flesh also dwells secure, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. This is the only indication that we get in the psalm about what he was crying out about in the beginning. They may be connected. I think they are. His preserve me, O God, comes from his concern about his flesh and his soul. And he concludes here in verse 9 and 10, my flesh dwells secure because you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. David lands somewhere in his calling out to the Lord. He doesn't just stop. He, he, he lands somewhere, and he lands here that the Lord, if the Lord is my fortress, let's, let's move our way through his train of thought so we can be with David and join him there. If the Lord is my refuge, and if all good comes from him, and if I have no good apart from him, and if he has surrounded me with his people, and that they are excellent, and they are my delight, and if everybody who turns from him into other things only see their sorrows multiplied, but those who are with him only see goodness, and if he is my chosen portion and my cup superior to everything else that the Lord has to offer, and if he holds my lot, this good God holds my lot, then the boundaries have all fallen in pleasant places, and my inheritance is beautiful, if he's the one who counsels me, who draws near to me in this place of darkness, if he's the one who instructs my heart as I sleep, if he is the one who is right here at my right hand, if he is the one who, who stands with me, then I will not be shaken. And it's from there that my heart is glad, that my whole being rejoices. He didn't just get there. He didn't just say, I'm joyful. He proclaimed the goodness and majesty of Jesus, got his eyes fixed on the Lord and got to this place where he says, my whole being rejoices and the answer to my call in the beginning to secure me, well, my flesh dwells secure. Does that mean that he's not going to die? 
that he's not going to have enemies rise up against him? He says, my flesh dwells secure because, for, you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. He comes to understand about the Lord that in both body and soul and in life and death, he will never be separated from this eternal source of joy and pleasure forevermore. My life in my life and in my death, in my body and with my soul, the Lord holds me in his hand. He draws my lot. I have a beautiful inheritance. This was his anxiety. Lord, I never want to be apart from you. I don't want to die and see corruption. I don't want to be cast into Sheol, the grave. I don't want to decay in the earth. I don't want to spend one minute apart from you. But my heart is glad and my whole being is rejoicing that my flesh is secure and so is my soul. Because you will not let me see corruption. I am your holy one. Verse 11. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. In Acts, Peter is going to reference those verses, and because he references those verses, a lot of times this psalm is considered what's called a messianic psalm, where it's a prophecy about the coming of Jesus, because this was written before Christ came to earth. And so Peter's going to reference these, and he's going to say, listen, what he was talking about was Jesus. I mean, who's seated at the right hand of the Father? Jesus. At your right hand, our pleasures forevermore, who's at the right hand of God? You could say it. Jesus. Pleasures forevermore are seated at the right hand of God. Christ is seated at the right hand of God. In Christ are pleasures forevermore. You make known to me the path of life, and your presence is fullness of joy. Well, we have seen the face of God. We have seen joy in the face of Christ. At his hand are pleasures forevermore. Guys, if you have been redeemed, Jesus Christ is not some like unknowable entity to you. He's not just a series of theological subpoints that you make over coffee in people's houses. He is the living God seated at the right hand of the Father in whom are all pleasures forevermore. If you want to know joy, you need to know Jesus. Because all pleasure is at the right hand of the Father, and at the right hand of the Father is Jesus. Guys, I, I know, I mean, I know this room, most of it. We've been living life together, and life can be a slog. It can be a slow, trudging slog where you look around and you're like, where is goodness? Where is joy? Where's my dad? Right? Like, really hard things happen. I cannot say to my friend Pam, you should expect immediate relief for your hip. It would take a miracle. And the, but the one place you can look for that is seated at the right hand of the Father. Turn there. And whether he gives you healing or he just gives you him, the boundaries have fallen in pleasant places because he draws boundaries around himself. Whichever one will draw you nearer to him, that's the one he'll give you. Tim Keller said that when you pray, the Lord always gives you what you would have prayed if you knew everything he knew. 
right? So we think we need one thing in order to enter into joy. God gives us the actual thing that will lead us into joy. He gives us himself, and sometimes nothing more. And he gives us his church, and that peace is steady. Mercy Store, I'm going to wrap up, and I, I know that I tend to be a little bit more scrambled than Pastor Michael, who's just so good at being succinct and breaking his sermons down into four points and things like that. I'm going to try, okay? Number one, you do not need to wait for your lateral circumstances to change to enter into joy. Your joy is not hinging on your lot changing or on your boundaries falling in different places because the boundaries have fallen in pleasant places because the holder of your lot is a good God. Point number one, okay? Track it with me on that one. Point number two is that seated at the right hand of God is Jesus Christ, and all of your pleasure is hinging on him. Either he was victorious at the cross and rescued you from the slavery to sin into new life with the Lord and has indwelled you with the Holy Spirit so that you can see the face of God rightly and receive his ministry of joy and pleasure, or you haven't. If you have, joy is always readily available to you in him. And he's knowable. And he draws near to you. He's your counselor. Okay, it's a two-point sermon. We're not waiting for our circumstances to change. We're trying to get our eyes fixed on our greater reality. That our circumstances are amazing. That if the Lord never did one more thing for you in this life, you would spend an eternity worshiping him for what he's already done because the lines have fallen in pleasant places. And if, like me, you are struggling to enter into joy, consider this a sub-point. Spend time with people who know him. Let them show you where you can see the Lord in your life. Let them point you to the one who's seated at the right hand of the Father. Don't isolate yourself. As we continue through the sermon series next week and, and through the next several weeks, we're going to pull a different emotion each time that we want to look at, different experience that we want to look at. We're going to use the Psalms to give voice to those things. We're going to talk about anger. We're going to talk about, uh, we're going to talk about a lot of different things. There's a reason why Pastor Michael said we really need to do joy first, okay? We need to do joy first because this part doesn't change. I want you to pray with me this morning for the person sitting next to you. If you could put a hand on someone you know in this room and pray for them this morning. I look out at this room and I just, I long with my heart to see more smiles, okay? And I want you to pray for the person next to you that they would truly experience the joy, deep, satisfying joy, happiness that is available to them in the Lord today before anything changes.